The rise of Hitler, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, COVID-19. Could one man really foresee them all? If you enjoy these episodes on Nostradamus and want to hear more about history's most compelling puzzles, check out the Unexplained Mysteries podcast. Each week, sort through the evidence and occasionally uncover the answers. Follow Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-16th century, a Frenchman named Nostradamus scurried down a dark passage. His long robes billowed behind him. Most of the world believed he was an accomplished physician, and he was. But he used his scientific training in an unusual way. Every evening, Nostradamus shut himself into his private study. He preferred to work in the depths of night. He filled a broad bowl with water. Then he dripped dark ink into it, making the bowl appear bottomless. For hours, he gazed into the concoction, meditating over the blackness, until he saw something. Sometimes he witnessed the death of a great leader, other times untold suffering from a brutal natural disaster. He saw the misery and cruelty of cataclysmic wars, but none of it had happened yet. Nostradamus was seeing the future. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Nostradamus, a 16th century physician turned soothsayer who claimed to foresee the untold horrors of the future. Nearly 500 years later, Nostradamus's prophecies continue to predict the catastrophes of our modern age. In fact, we may even be living through one right now. Today, we'll discuss Nostradamus's life and what little we know of his methods. Then, we'll dive into the contemporary events he appeared to predict, including the rise of Hitler, the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Next episode, we'll dissect how one 16th century man could have accurately anticipated so much. Believers think Nostradamus used ancient astrological and other occult techniques to forge a connection with the divine. Skeptics write off Nostradamus's prophecies as nothing but a combination of luck and vague writing. Whatever his methods, Nostradamus wrote something useful. In nearly five centuries, his books have never been out of print. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Nostradamus spent his young life trying to survive the squalid living conditions of the early 1500s. Bathing was mostly looked down upon. Vermin like lice, fleas, and rats shared homes with humans. But Nostradamus was lucky. His family enjoyed an upper-middle-class lifestyle thanks to his mother's sizable dowry and father's work as a grain merchant and notary. Together, they had nine children. It has been said that his maternal great-grandfather, a doctor himself, took on the boy's early education. Notably, his great-grandfather also may have taught Nostradamus Hebrew. He probably taught that lesson in secret because, officially, the family was Catholic. Both of Nostradamus's parents had Jewish ancestors, but his paternal grandfather, Guy Gassonet, converted to Catholicism around 1455. At that point, the family's surname changed to Nostradam. This conversion wasn't so much a matter of faith as of survival. Throughout much of the 15th century, Jewish people in France were forced to either convert to Christianity or leave the region. At the time, the French government and the church were inextricably intertwined. They cooperated to squash any ideas or people that questioned Catholic teachings. If Nostradamus and his family continued to upkeep Jewish traditions, this meant they did so in secret. Practicing Judaism risked inciting the all-powerful wrath of the church, which could result in the family losing their wealth and their land. Little is known regarding how much Nostradamus learned about his Jewish roots during his childhood. Some believe that Nostradamus did learn Hebrew and basic Jewish traditions. And others suggest that it was through Judaism that the young Nostradamus was introduced to the supernatural. For instance, Nostradamus may have been taught the practice of Kabbalah, a Jewish mystical tradition dating back to Moses' time. According to the Bible, God appeared to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. When Moses ascended the mountain, God gave him the Ten Commandments, a fundamental set of rules that formed the basis of their faith. According to Dr. Peter Forshaw of the University of Exeter, some believe God also gave Moses a method for practitioners to connect directly to the divine, Kabbalah. According to this tradition, unlike the Ten Commandments, Moses kept this practice hidden from the masses. Only the initiated were allowed to learn it. If Nostradamus learned the secrets of this mystical tradition, he could have learned to interpret signs and elicit help from angels. Some of these skills might even have allowed him to see into the future. Nostradamus's education might have also included astrology. 
In fact, some believe that his great-grandfather was the first to introduce him to the subject. The study of the planets and stars was also entwined in Jewish teachings from hundreds of years earlier, around 1000 CE. Many respected ancient Jewish leaders and thinkers believed that the heavens held all the secrets to the fate of humanity. It only took patient eyes and an intelligent mind to interpret them. Perhaps his great-grandfather saw that fateful combination in Nostradamus. But Nostradamus couldn't learn everything he needed to know at home. In 1519, the teenager left home to receive a classical education at the University of Avignon, studying subjects like grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, and astronomy. A bubonic plague epidemic interrupted his schooling, but Nostradamus made the most of it. He traveled around France, learning about herbal medicine and working as an informal apothecary. At the time, apothecaries functioned as pharmacists. They provided medicines and advice to anyone who was ailing, but weren't treated with the same level of respect as a doctor. Nostradamus eventually returned to school, but this time at the University of Montpellier, sometime in the early 1520s. But he continually butted heads with his professors. On top of that, the other students and faculty looked down upon his professional background as an apothecary. Eventually, the university decided to expel Nostradamus based on what they called his practice as an apothecary or quack. After that, it's unclear whether or not Nostradamus ever completed his medical training. Some historians claim he officially became a doctor in the late 1520s, but there's no record of this. He did adhere to the learned tradition of Latinizing his surname from Nostradam to Nostradamus, perhaps indicating that he received an official license of some kind. But regardless of his academic standing, Nostradamus seemed to prefer the learning he'd done in the field. He used herbalism to treat the plague into the 1540s with great success. Most famously, he used a pill made of vitamin C-rich rose hips to help victims recover. He also supposedly advised sanitation and the swift removal of plague-ridden corpses. By 1531, when Nostradamus was 28, he moved to Ajan, France, and befriended the renowned scholar Julius Caesar Scaliger. The two then began working together. Nostradamus found Ajan a fine place to settle down. In short order, he married a local woman named Henriette Dancous and opened his own apothecary shop. The newlyweds spent about three happy years in Ajan and had a son and a daughter together. In addition to building a family, Nostradamus enjoyed professional success. His apothecary shop became a social hub full of gossip and gambling. But in 1534, a series of disasters struck. Historians don't exactly know why, but his relationship with the scholar Scaliger fell apart, putting Nostradamus in a precarious position. Then, events got much worse. While Nostradamus was in Italy, presumably treating plague victims, his wife and two children apparently came down with the very same illness. Although Nostradamus rushed home to care for them, all three perished. The grief of losing his entire family was surely painful enough. 
but unfortunately, their deaths also had catastrophic consequences to Nostradamus's credibility as a physician. Because he'd been unable to heal his own loved ones, the community no longer trusted Nostradamus's medical skills. His wife's family even sued him to reclaim the value of her dowry. Nostradamus was stricken. There was nothing left for him in Ajan but sorrow. So he packed up his remaining belongings and left town. The physician spent the next 10 years traveling around France and possibly even Italy and Germany. He retreated into his earlier life as a nomadic apothecary and doctor. Perhaps his misfortune pushed him to try and prevent disaster for others, or at least to provide some warning. Because sometime during all those lonely nights on the road, Nostradamus's mind returned to his interest in astrology. It's not clear exactly when, but sometime between 1534 and 1545, Nostradamus began seeing the future. And then what he saw began to come true. Coming up, one of Nostradamus's first accurate predictions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Nostradamus grew up learning about how astrology and perhaps even the Kabbalah could foretell the future. Although he received medical training, his fascination with the occult never left him. After the death of his entire family in 1534, Nostradamus returned to the nomadic habits of his youth. As he traveled, he practiced medicine and picked up the latest in herbology— but he also learned new ideas about magic and alchemy. As he wandered Europe, the soothsayer inside him awakened. One legend recounts one of Nostradamus's earliest prophecies. During his journey, a French nobleman called Monsieur de Florenville invited Nostradamus to stay on his estate. The matriarch of de Florenville's household had taken ill, and Nostradamus stepped in to nurse her back to health. As the traveling doctors settled in, he shared his budding talent for prediction with his hosts, and perhaps he boasted a bit too much because his hosts demanded a demonstration. Later, while walking on the grounds, the nobleman pointed out two piglets to Nostradamus. One was black, the other white. De Florenville asked Nostradamus what would happen to the little pigs. Nostradamus answered without hesitation. The family would eat the black pig, and a wolf would eat the white one. De Florenville was apparently eager to prove the young soothsayer a fraud. He immediately ordered his chef to slaughter the white pig for their supper. The chef obeyed his master. But when he left the carcass unattended, a pet wolf cub managed to get his jaws around the entree. The white pig was no longer fit for human consumption. So, unaware of Nostradamus's prediction, the chef slaughtered the black pig to save dinner. 
That evening, as the household consumed their meal, de Florinville smugly informed Nostradamus that they were eating the white pig. His prediction was incorrect. But Nostradamus stood by his word, insisting that the black pig's carcass was on the table. Unwilling to be one-upped in his own house, de Florinville ordered his chef to the dining room to corroborate his story. Of course, the chef confirmed that Nostradamus was right. Based on this anecdote, Nostradamus seemed more like a parlor magician than a gifted seer. Predicting what's for dinner is a little different than foreseeing a deadly disaster. But it's likely that the piglet legend didn't fully illustrate Nostradamus's powers. The seer never claimed he could know the future at a glance. His future predictions required much more concentrated study to generate knowledge about significant events. And throughout the mid-1540s, he continued to travel and refine his skills. Eventually, Nostradamus grew weary of the nomadic lifestyle. During this time, he returned to his home region of Provence, this time settling in a town called Salon. Historians aren't entirely sure why he chose Salon, but it might have had something to do with romance. In 1547, 44-year-old Nostradamus remarried, this time to a wealthy widow named Anne Ponsard Gemelli. It's also possible that Nostradamus finally gave up the wandering lifestyle because he was ready to dedicate more focused energy to his prophecies. His marriage and the money it provided allowed Nostradamus to build his dream observatory. The entire top floor of Nostradamus's new home was dedicated to his study of the heavens. The space was secluded and expansive, probably packed with herbs, astrological charts, religious tomes, and telescopes. All the tools and privacy Nostradamus needed to generate his visions. In this space, Nostradamus perfected his technique for gazing into the future. His work indicates that he dabbled in magic and alchemy, a quasi-science dedicated to transforming matter. His background as an herbalist likely provided a useful foundation for alchemical experiments. Nostradamus surely used a patchwork of all the different techniques he'd acquired. His study of astrology provided a broad overview of when and where big events might happen. But that was about all the position of the planets could tell him. Just a shadow of what might come. In order to get more specific, Nostradamus depended on his own mind. As legend has it, in the darkest hours of the night, after the moon left the sky and Nostradamus had seen all he could through his telescope, he would fill up a bowl with water. Sometimes he would spike it with carefully selected herbs. Some think these plants might have had psychoactive properties that put Nostradamus in the proper headspace to receive his visions. As he gazed into the bowl of water, hoping to see the future, he also breathed in chemicals that opened his mind. According to author Elmar Gruber, Nostradamus believed that his psychic abilities came from his bloodline. Like his ancestors before him, when Nostradamus sat down before the bowl, he became a lightning rod for divine messages. We'll never know exactly what happened inside Nostradamus's dark study, but we can examine the results. 
1550, Nostradamus published his first predictive work, an almanac. Almanacs are still common today and generally predict weather patterns for the coming year. Nostradamus's publication was much the same, although it contained other predictions. He included a few choice pieces from his own visions, supposedly about political events, for instance. But unfortunately, they've since been lost to time. The almanac did very well all across France. Although Nostradamus's skills surely contributed to his success, he also had serendipity on his side. His publication coincided almost exactly with the Renaissance explosion of the printing press. Countless copies of his almanac spread across France and much of Europe with incredible speed. Previously, his work would have had to be meticulously copied by hand, and only the wealthy could have afforded to own the book. Now, more copies were available and at a lower price. An almanac's wide appeal made it the perfect book for this market. And naturally, Nostradamus's book was a hit. Invigorated by the success, he published several more almanacs in the following years. He always included the more fantastical predictions sourced from his visions. In fact, the extra flourish of Nostradamus's prophecies might have been the secret ingredient that made his books stand out, because his next move was to double down on them. During this time, Nostradamus announced his plans for a masterpiece called Centuries. Rather than limiting his predictions to the year ahead, his new work would contain prophecies for the future centuries, hence the work's title. This work, also known as The Prophecies, wasn't only a massive undertaking, it was also a risky one. The Catholic Church still ruled France, and they kept their eye on practicing seers like Nostradamus. He could easily run afoul of the subjective, ever-changing whims and desires of the Church. Some historians think this danger made Nostradamus eschew the straightforward language in the almanacs for a more arcane style that obscured his meaning. In fact, the work is written in verse. He composed every prophecy in quatrains, or rhyming four-line verses. Every 100 quatrains was called a century. The result was a rambling, haunting epic poem. The style would make readers feel as if they had climbed directly inside the fevered seer's mind. And after the prophecy's publication in 1555, it was a roaring success. His already modest fame exploded. Nostradamus received invitations from noblemen and women all across Europe. The most esteemed summons came from royalty. Catherine, the Queen of France. Catherine invited Nostradamus to her court in order to have him perform readings regarding her husband's and children's destiny. Perhaps she had read Nostradamus's work and became alarmed when she spotted predictions that she thought spelled disaster for her family. In fact, in his prophecies, there is a quatrain that is later thought to have predicted Catherine's husband's death. The quatrain in question reads, the young lion will overcome the old one in a single combat on a military field. Inside a golden cage, his eyes will be pierced. Two wounds shall result from one blow, and afterwards, he'll die a painful death. 
1555, Nostradamus traveled to Paris to make his prophecies to the royals. He predicted that all of her sons would become kings. The visit was successful, and soon Nostradamus was regularly predicting the royal family's future. Catherine also asked for readings about her husband, King Henry II. Quite ominously, Nostradamus advised Catherine to keep the king away from the battlefield and even ritual jousting. Catherine tried to get the king to adhere to Nostradamus's advice, but in 1559, he ignored her and agreed to joust the leader of his personal bodyguards, a young man named Gabriel de Lorge, Count of Montgomery. As the two faced each other on horseback, lances in hand, Catherine had to avert her eyes. The superstitious queen was sure nothing good could come of flouting a soothsayer's advice. She was right. After a few runs without impact, the Count's lance splintered. The shards flew into the helmet's eye slit, piercing the king's eyes and entering his brain. Just as Nostradamus had predicted, a single blow caused multiple injuries. The color of the king's helmet is lost to history, but it's easy to imagine it being gold. Just like the golden cage in Nostradamus's quatrain. The final line of the prophecy came true as well. The king took ten long, painful days to succumb to his wounds. Although Nostradamus predicted the king's death, his uncanny accuracy secured him fame and a cushy lifestyle until his final day. He continued generating prophecies and published subsequent editions of his book. Nostradamus even supposedly predicted his own death. Allegedly, before going to bed on July 1st, 1566, he told his secretary, you will not find me alive at sunrise. The next morning, he was dead. But even after his passing, Nostradamus's legacy continued to thrive. Many would argue that he grows even more famous as the centuries go by. Because in the hundreds of years since his death, the predictions Nostradamus published in the prophecies continue to ring true. Perhaps he can tell us what's about to happen, even now. Coming up, what the prophecies might tell us about what lies just around the corner. Now back to the story. Nostradamus wrote a series of catastrophic predictions in The Prophecies. He even lived to see some of them come true, including the death of King Henry II. But when Nostradamus died in 1566, he had no idea that his prophecies would only grow in popularity over the next several centuries. Today, Nostradamus's fans claim the seer foretold the Great Fire of London, the French Revolution, and many other calamities. But three particular disasters stick out. Particular quatrains bear a hair-raisingly specific resemblance to real-life events from recent history, and they all continue to affect daily life today. Nostradamus wrote in Quatrain 224, the greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. Into a cage of iron will the Great One be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. 
Many believe those lines predicted the rise of Hitler in 1930s Germany. They nearly list the dictator by name. Hister could be a misspelling on Nostradamus's part. It could also be a translation or printer error. One early bookmaker mislaid a few letters, and the mistake carried over through generations. But there's much more in those lines that could provide an eerie window into Nazi Germany. The first line reads, The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister, unquote. It accurately predicts the near-global opposition Hitler and the Nazis faced. As Hitler rose to power, he found popularity among his fellow Germans, but much of the international community denounced his nationalist and white supremacist ideals. Next, Nostradamus says, into a cage of iron will the Great One be drawn. This line has several interpretations. Some think it could relate to the military vehicles that Hitler preferred to ride in during parades. Literally, he was drawn forward in an iron cage. It could also be a reference to the bunker where Hitler spent his final days. The shelter was constructed from a variety of materials, but one of the most visible safety measures was a steel door. Losing a world war eventually forced Hitler into that iron cage. Ultimately, it would be the site of his suicide. Perhaps the most ominous piece of the prediction comes in the final line, when the child of Germany observes nothing. Hitler was a famous and prolific propagandist. From his very start as a leader, he utilized misleading rhetoric and slanted publications to win public support to his cause. He designed his message to seize the hearts and minds of his people. It was many years before his most vile plans for the country became clear. Instead, the children of Germany were initially dazzled by his aspirational speeches about national success and power. They observed nothing of his truly dastardly intentions. Hitler himself was aware of Nostradamus's verse and tried to make it into a self-fulfilling prophecy. He used this now famous quatrain in some of his propaganda. Nazi marketing teams knew that the French would be particularly susceptible to the predictions of their native seer. They quoted Nostradamus's poetry in the pamphlets they designed specifically to sow fear in French minds. They probably also included one additional line. It appears just before Quatrain 224. Beasts ferocious with hunger will cross the rivers. Part of the border between Germany and France is along the Rhine River. According to Elmar Gruber, German authorities loaded pamphlets with Nostradamus' verses onto bombers. The airplanes flew over France, covering populated areas with the papers. The propaganda did its work well. When the German military entered Paris in 1940, they found empty streets. So many French civilians were terrified by Nostradamus's prediction, they fled ahead of the Germans. The capital of France was wide open for invasion, just as Nostradamus had foreseen. The next prediction we're exploring is about another international conflict. But this time, there was no warning. Instead, it took the entire world by surprise. Some think Nostradamus gazed into his water and saw the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
In the hours and days after the twin towers of the World Trade Center fell on September 11, 2001, Americans turned to the internet to make sense of the tragedy. Plenty of people searched for information on President George W. Bush or Osama bin Laden. But one term was queried more often than either of those names, Nostradamus. In the following weeks, books about Nostradamus flew into Amazon's bestseller list. Experts and new Nostradamus enthusiasts alike scoured their copies of the prophecies for verses that might have foretold the tragedy in New York. Eventually, they all must have felt the hair-raising sensation of reading about their present in a book written hundreds of years ago. The quatrain reads, Earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause tremors around the new city. Two great rocks will war for a long time. Then Arethusa will redden the river. Again, every line of the quatrain can be linked to the 9-11 attacks without much difficulty. Author and Nostradamus enthusiast Mario Redding breaks it down nearly word by word. He says the first line, earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth, references the gasoline in the planes that blew up to destroy the towers. Originally, that gas was harvested from below the Earth's surface. The line has a deeper meaning as well. American appetite for gasoline aggravated the extremists who perpetrated the attacks. The same earth-shaking fire caused the devastation both directly and indirectly. Next, the quatrain reads, will cause tremors around the new city. New Yorkers all around the city felt shaking from the explosion. Redding also references a slightly different translation that aligns even more clearly with the attacks. It reads, will shake the towers of the new city. The term new city is another buzzword. Certainly, the word new links the line directly to New York, but for Nostradamus, it could have had a broader meaning. Redding thinks that Nostradamus could have been referring to the New World, which was how the Americas were known during his time. Naming the continent and the city in a single word showcases Nostradamus's seemingly incredibly efficiency in style. The following line reads, Two great rocks will war for a long time. Redding thinks the two great rocks could refer to the two religions of Christianity and Islam, and then perhaps by extension, the United States and Afghanistan. Either way, both groups launched into a prolonged war after 9-11. And finally, then Arethusa will redden a new river. Nostradamus likely referred to a Greek myth here. There are several versions of the legend, but all of them feature a nymph named Arethusa. In order to escape the advances of the god Alpheus, she transformed into a river or spring. Arethusa is also the name of a deep pink orchid found predominantly in the eastern United States. It's as if Nostradamus somehow knew this particular flower flourished at the site of the future disaster and used it as a stand-in for its victim. If the United States is Arethusa, they certainly went on to bloody plenty of rivers in repayment for the attacks. As of 2016, 111,000 Afghan people died in the war with the United States. 
With 9-11 and many other catastrophes, people only connected Nostradamus's predictions to them after the fact. But a current, more drawn-out tragedy allows believers in Nostradamus's predictions the time to scour the prophecies and find a connection before the carnage is over. As the COVID-19 pandemic began ravaging the planet in late 2019, many read through Nostradamus's work. They searched for references to our freshest misfortune, and the seer did not disappoint. Although there are several quatrains that could be linked to the coronavirus, one emerged as the frontrunner. It reads, in the feeble lists, great calamity through America and Lombardy, the fire in the ship, plague and captivity, Mercury in Sagittarius, Saturn warning. Again, each and every line can draw a parallel to the pandemic. First, the feeble lists, KQED journalist Ray Alexandra suspects that this refers to those sickened and killed by the virus. Since the outbreak began, the tallies of the ill and the dead are constantly updated and closely followed by many. The next line fits into reality with a disturbing level of detail. Quote, great calamity through America and Lombardy, unquote. America and the Lombardy region of Italy were two areas that became hotspots of the pandemic. The following verse probably feels exhaustingly familiar to many of us. The fire in the ship, plague and captivity. Most everyone has experienced some mixture of plague and captivity as the virus continues its spread. But the flaming ship is relevant as well. Early in the pandemic, huge cruise liners became incubators for the virus. Several of them ended up stranded at sea when ports refused entry to vessels carrying infected passengers. The final line may seem like the most obscure of the four, but it highlights a key facet of Nostradamus's process, astrology. The line reads, Mercury in Sagittarius, Saturn warning. According to Alexandra, Mercury moved into the Sagittarius constellation in December 2019. COVID-19 infected its first victims around this time. Saturn entered the Aquarius constellation on March 21st, 2020. That was the first full day of New York City's lockdown. Following this theory, Nostradamus not only predicted the coronavirus pandemic, but he also narrowed it down to the exact months when it would take off. As the disease took hold in the United States, Internet conspiracy theories centered around Nostradamus flourished. Just like after 9-11, people reached out to the seer to feel some kind of control over the disaster. They desperately hoped he could provide some glimpse of what might be coming. Only time will tell if their efforts paid off. Human obsession with knowing what lies ahead is timeless. It has sustained Nostradamus's fame for over 450 years, but no other soothsayer has ever come close to achieving Nostradamus's notoriety. Perhaps that's because Nostradamus knew something they didn't. Join us next time to unravel some of the methods the legendary soothsayer employed. It's possible that the Jewish practice of Kabbalah could be part of his recipe.
The secrets of the custom are still closely guarded. Perhaps Nostradamus stumbled onto an obscure, hidden truth. Astrology is another of Nostradamus's favorite practices. The predictable movement of the stars and planets could reveal how the seer managed to look so far into the future. Of course, not everyone is a believer. We'll also hear what the skeptics have to say. Nostradamus's enduring fame might be even more impressive if he's not a true seer, but a talented charlatan. Whatever power Nostradamus may have had, he tapped into our human desire to see the future in his words. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two on Nostradamus. For more information on Nostradamus, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Smalley's book, The Essential Nostradamus, and the Discovery Channel documentary, Nostradamus, The Truth, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.